Hey, Grace and peace to you all. It's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Corps in Grass Valley, California, and I am here today to do our online worship in study. And hey, um, thank you so much for joining with us as we work our way through the book of Acts. Uh, hopefully you've got a Bible. If you do, flip your Bible open to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you shoot me a note and I will get one into your hands, probably before next week. And uh, we'd like to just make sure that you read along because anytime someone tells you something is in the Bible, you've got to look that up for yourself. Don't just trust anyone or maybe I should say just trust, but verify, right? Always check it for yourself. Now, the book of Acts contains some highly controversial material, much of which we miss when we read it for one reason or another. For those of us who grew up in a church setting, there are things that we just culturally expect to hear, and so we may hear what we expect rather than hearing what's being said. And for those who never really had or experienced that kind of indoctrination, the subtle way that Luke mentions some things makes it easy for them to sort of slide by without catching our attention. Today's story touches on a couple of those things, important things, which we should definitely pay attention to, but they aren't the main point Luke is trying to convey to his readers, so they tend to get lost. We are not going to lose them today, I hope. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And while you're finding your way there, I'm going to give you just a quick, brief history of the Samaritan people. Now, in the days after Solomon was king, the nation of Israel split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern one of Judea. They each had their problems, but generally speaking, Judea followed God's words and ways more often than their neighbors. And when Assyria was invading countries across the uh, ancient Near East, uh, Judea called on the Lord God to save them, while Israel relied on the Canaanite gods that they had adopted instead. Now, the results were predictable. Israel was invaded, its infrastructure just devastated, and its people destroyed. The very few survivors were mostly exported to live and work in other conquered nations, while people from those other nations were sent to the shattered remains of Israel to work the land as Assyrian slaves. In this way, the populations were assimilated. Centuries later, even after the boundaries of Israel were somewhat restored, the nation was now divided into three main parts. We had Judea in the south, we had Galilee in the north, and in between was Samaria, which is where the descendants of that Assyrian intermingling remained in Samaria. Now, the people there, they were called Samaritans. Along the way, Judah had their own exile experience. They were conquered by Babylon. The survivors uh, of Judah were also exported, but without the forced population assimilation, which their cousins had experienced. So those who returned home after the exile, <laughs> boy, they were just, they were obsessed with purity and they kept themselves apart from the other nations around them as best they could because they felt that somehow this was what had caused their downfall. And they absolutely hated the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds, unworthy. They pointed to the ways the Samaritans worshipped differently than the so-called real Jews. Samaritans and Jews each claimed that the other had corrupted the scriptures they used. Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem, which they claimed to be the place of God's presence on earth. Samaritans worshipped on 
Mount Gerizim at a temple that they built there, believing that it was the place of God's presence. At this point, we have really only Jewish writings from these times, but they are enlightening. They tell a story of Samaritans as less than human and not to be trusted. And based on the later records we have from Samaria, the Samaritans felt uh, pretty much the same way about the Jews. By the time of Jesus, this had led to trade routes from Galilee to Jerusalem going around the province in the center of their nation as if it was a patch of brambles that needed to be avoided. Now, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus didn't do what was expected of him. He, he never did, frankly. Uh, I'm sure his followers were not thrilled that he would bring them into Samaria. Sometimes they were just passing through where others would have gone around, but sometimes Jesus would stop and talk to people. Like this one time he took them all to a village in the middle of Samaria and he sent them out to grab some pizza or whatever while he sat at a local well. And when they came back, they found Jesus talking to a woman there, if you can believe that. She sure couldn't. The author of the fourth gospel put it this way when Jesus asked her for something to drink. This is uh, John chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? And then there's a little parenthetical the author puts in. It says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's, it's hard to explain how deep the division between these two groups was. Another time when Jesus was telling a story meant to show how we need to care for one another, he made a Samaritan the hero of the story, saying that he stopped to save the life of an Israelite. This was such a radical idea, his hearers would have been shocked at the very notion of a Samaritan helping a Jew. One more, just to let you know how things stood with some of the people we know and Samaritans. Uh, Jesus had taken his crowd walk about through Samaria again, but this time when they came to a village and asked if they could stay the night, they were turned away. This group of villagers were going to let some, were, were not going to let some uh, crazy desert philosopher and his raggedy peasant band come stink up their town with their Israelite ways. No, no, no. And, and so James and John Zebedee, two of Jesus's key followers, Two of the guys who followed him around and tried to learn to be just like him, they jumped right up and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? See, they were ready and willing to destroy a whole village of Samaritans, men, women, and children, just because they felt slighted by them. How bitter the hatred between those two peoples must have been. So, fast forward through the rest of everything. The arrest, the execution, the resurrection of Jesus, the months in Jerusalem, teaching what Jesus taught them, growing the church, then the brutal murder of Stephen, the persecution of Jesus' followers that came after that. Pretty much only the apostles stayed in the city and the rest of everyone scattered across the land. Some to nearby villages, others probably went home to Galilee, while still others traveled to more remote destinations like Damascus in Syria. But one went somewhere else. Somewhere I'm sure that no one expected he would go. And this brings us to where we're going to start today, Acts chapter 8, with verses 4 and 5. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, to, to be clear who we're talking about, this is Philip who was one of the seven who had been in charge of food distribution, not Philip the Apostle, who was one of the twelve. 
So this is Philip, who'd been in charge of making sure people were treated equally while giving food to the most vulnerable among them. And I gotta tell you, there is something. There's something about helping people in need that humanizes them, I think. I don't think Philip was able to see the Samaritans as just being those people or as inferior to others anymore, even if that was the way he was raised. I think he started to see them the way that Jesus did, as God's beloved children. Verse 6 says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Can you imagine what it must have been like watching someone who you thought of as one of your greatest enemies coming to pray for you and teach you? I suspect most didn't believe in him at all at first. I mean, if the people had TV, I bet no one even would have come out to see Philip at all, would they? But they were curious how long it would take before the mob killed him or at least beat him and ran him out of town. So they all turned out to watch. You know how it is. You pack some snacks, grab the kids, go out to watch someone die. It's fun for the whole family. What? This is how people have behaved for thousands of years. We do the same thing now as people did back then. Uh, we just use, like I said, television. It gives us a little more distance so we can pretend that we're not celebrating violence and bloodshed. Well, we thrill to watching what we watch. But I digress. So the families turn out to see how long before the crazy Judite gets the smackdown when all of a sudden that guy gets a weird look on his face and he darts into the crowd and he begins to pray for someone who was hurt in an accident. And then he turns and says something to a nearby person and they kind of make some shudder and shriek and then are left looking at peace. Well, the guy who was prayed over can be seen standing and examining their no longer broken arm or whatever. Philip starts to heal people. He's not just there to preach at them. And he lives out the example that he had seen in Jesus and those first disciples and in the apostles. Or at least he's living out the instruction Jesus had given. Remember at the very beginning of Acts, Acts 1, uh, this is in the uh, second part of verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's Philip being that witness in Samaria. He's a Jewish man reaching out to his spiritual cousins in love without regard to their awkward history. And the Samaritans responded by bringing more and more of their sick, their injured, and those who seemed to be possessed by ill humors or dark spirits. And Philip healed them, talking all the while about this guy he says is a Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for all of Israel. And he means them too, the Samaritans. So yeah, there is great joy in the city. So great, in fact, it gets the attention of some of the town's leaders. Verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, <laughs> excuse me, and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. All right, I love the uh, New International Version. That's why we're preaching out of it. But sorcery is the wrong word here. The Greek says Simon, a practicer of magic. 
And I know I'm totally nitpicking here because the distinction is pretty small, but a magician worked magic or said that he did by doing rituals with objects. Well, a sorcerer worked magic by making or using herbs and drugs, usually along with some kind of ritual. Still, a, a sorcerer was more of a cross between a pharmacist and the corner drug dealer, while a magician was more someone who just used tools to perform wonders, like uh, Jesus rubbing mud into a man's eyes to cure his blindness. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was a magician, but because he did that wonder in that way, stories about where his power may come from could have spread that named him a magician. There's a whole different word for the street magician or the con man, by the way, but I've already demonstrated that I spend too much of my life buried in dictionaries. So let's move on. Simon practiced magic in the city, and he was apparently very successful in his practice, successful enough that people had declared him to have the power of a lesser god. Or maybe he had done that himself as part of talking up his own greatness. It doesn't seem like he was ashamed to do that at all. Either way, what Philip was doing was even more astonishing, and he had eclipsed Simon with the things that he did. And verse 11 says, They followed Simon because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So where Simon had dazzled them and focused them on his greatness, Philip healed, cast out spirits in the name of Jesus, and talked about him instead of himself. And the people began to believe. So Philip baptized them, men and women equally, dunking them one after the other in the water. And the allegiance of the people shifted from Simon the magician to Philip the evangelist, and hopefully through Philip to Jesus. And Simon reacted when he saw this. Look at verse 13. It says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now, I want to stop here, because does it strike you as a bit odd, the godlike leader of the city converting to become a puppy-like follower of Philip? Does it seem maybe a little stalkerish? Well, it seems like it's supposed to. There's something in the way that Luke is telling this story that's like a film director using a tilted camera angle. It's off in a way that leaves us aware something's not quite as it should be, even if we can't tell for sure what it is that's wrong. And then verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Well, of course they did. They want to see what's really going on. It's Samaria, after all, and you know those people can't be trusted, right? I mean, sure, they're Israelites, but just barely. How could they come to know Jesus? I see John in particular going along with Peter because he remembers how that Samaritan village had rejected Jesus before, and he wants to see for himself if the reports are true or if this is all some kind of a trick. But when they got there, the reports turned out to be true. 
people had heard the message. They had learned about following the way. They had seen what Philip was doing, both the miraculous and the merely friendly, and they had been impressed. They really did believe. They really had been baptized in water in the name of Jesus. In fact, only one thing seemed to be lacking, and it's taken care of here in verse 15. It says, when they arrived, they being the apostles, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And at this point, a 2,000-year-old argument began. Okay, well, to be fair, it didn't start for a couple of centuries. The argument is, what is required for salvation? And well, this question is a little sideways from our main story today, I think we should take a short moment to point out something that's not always obvious. Biblically speaking, there is no set pattern of steps to salvation. Now, varying church traditions may have different steps they believe that disciples should follow to grow in their spiritual lives, and we all have verses that we use to support why we say one thing or another is important. But when we look at the people and their moments of coming to God that are laid out in the Bible, we find a mess of different steps, ideas, confirmations, and approaches. Some conversions seem to be tailored by God to reach the heart of a specific person, and others seem to come from this mass preaching and a simple response. Still, others like the one we're looking at here in Acts chapter 8, seem to have several steps which have to all happen before we can say with any certainty if someone might actually have become part of the people of God. Here in Acts, we see the Samaritans. They hear the gospel. They believe it. They get baptized. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come until later, possibly months later, when Peter and John come to lay hands on them. But that wasn't the case for the original converts in Acts chapter 2, was it? There we have an outside, uh, I'm sorry, there outside of the original group of believers, we don't hear about any kind of gifting of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that there wasn't one, but it, it's not detailed. Over the next few chapters, we see a, uh, a baptism of water and the Holy Spirit happen together. And then another time, we'll see where a household's acceptance of Jesus leads to the gift of the Holy Spirit immediately. And only later do they go to get baptized. Is baptism a central key to salvation? No, because we also have stories of people who are never baptized, who we are told are forgiven and accepted believers in the family of God. Abraham, for one. And if you say, well, Abraham was before the Red Sea, and so he was before that baptism thing. Well, okay, the brigand on the cross beside Jesus for another. They didn't get off the cross and go get dunked in water before he, Jesus said, okay, now you can go to heaven. Uh -uh. Still others, it's hard to know what pattern, if any, they may have followed in their path to salvation. We hear only that they are part of the faith, and we are to trust that they are. And you know what? I am okay with that. Salvation and the path to salvation may be similar for some of us, but it might also be different for all of us. Maybe God intends it to be a mystery. We don't get to know everything. For example, Simon the Magician is a kind of a mystery in how he's, he's described. Uh, we're told that he heard and he believed. He's been baptized. 
This description would lead us to believe that hands have been laid on him and the Holy Spirit has entered his spirit, right? Maybe. Maybe. Because the next thing that happens in verse 18 is this. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So you got to look at this and say, okay, is Simon saved or is he not saved? Was he not included with the rest? Was something different about him that wasn't immediately obvious? Is there something he just misunderstands about what the Holy Spirit is or how it would work in his life? Or did they lay hands on him and nothing happened and no one noticed? Or what? Mysteries. You know, what's not a mystery is what Peter thought of this offer to buy God's spirit as if it was a gimmick or a, a, um, a trick. But not God's gift of part of himself to all who believe, which is what it is. Look, look at the last bit of this passage. Verse 20, Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And here's another mystery that's divided people over the centuries. Is what Simon says, pray to the Lord for me, is this a statement of sincere repentance? Or is it a request based on fear or anger? And you know what? We don't really know. I myself, I lean towards the repentance idea. As a practicing magician, Simon may have thought this outpouring of spirit was like the supernatural rituals he had participated in before his conversion. And he thought, I want to help go convert other people, bring them to this Jesus that I've just learned about. Or maybe he thought the whole thing was some kind of elaborate trick, some way to fool people and elevate yourself into power that he couldn't understand. Some sort of elaborate trick, like the time that I went to see David Copperfield perform. And I had this balcony seat, and David flew up from the stage three stories below and right up to where I was sitting. And all I could think was, I have no idea how he did that, but I wish I could do it too. I missed out on whatever the blessing of the next few tricks was because I was so distracted with how it was he could have done that trick in a way that I couldn't understand it. I... I grew up around magicians. I was a street performer for years and hung out with magicians. I understand how illusions work and I have no real understanding of how that trick was done. Now, unlike me, Simon got a quick elbow in the ribs to remind him there was something more important he should be paying into, uh, paying attention to his own faith. See, the spirit is present in believers as a guide and a help, not as a parlor trick to be used to make a few bucks or put yourself in charge or anything. The Holy Spirit is God. It's not something we control, nor should it be something we even think we can. What we might want to ask instead of trying to discern the state of Simon's salvation is why God might wait 
in the case of these Samaritans, to pour out his spirit when Peter and John were there instead of before? And I think there's a simple answer to that. I think he made them instrumental to the spirit reaching this particular group of believers so they could be witnesses to the spirit reaching this particular group of believers. Having Samaritans accept Jesus as the Messiah, having them turn their lives over to following the way that he taught, that was a big deal. This is the beginning of healing a wound that has kept these two groups of Israelites apart for more than 600 years. It's the next step of teaching the followers of Jesus that people they thought were beyond any kind of salvation were still God's beloved children. And the other way around, too, is Samaritans recognized that God was reaching out to them through the Jews who they thought of as enemies. No more. Now, they're all brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing in the Spirit of God. What miracles will God do next? Well, maybe one more verse is in order. Look at verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. See, having seen for themselves that God had embraced and filled so many Samaritans in the city, Peter and John were convinced they needed to tell the others, everyone they could along the way. So instead of avoiding them, as would have been their habit prior to this, they made a point of stopping and talking to everyone as they left Samaria. Did they give anyone the gift of the Holy Spirit on the way? No, because they never gave anyone the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not Peter and John's gift to give any more than it is a magician's gift or mine or yours. The gift of the Holy Spirit is always and only the gift of God. A gift that I pray he has granted to each of you as I know he has granted it to me. It's a gift that celebrates our salvation. Now, online, uh, obviously there's no formal mercy seat set up for me to, to call you to go pray at or anything like that. But you know what? God doesn't require anyone meet him at a formal place of prayer. You can meet God right where you're at. So how about we all meet him together before we move on? Please pray this with me or just pray on your own. Abba, Father, root out any bitterness or envy in our hearts. Where our focus has shifted away from trusting you to trying to control you, snap us back from that. Remind us, like you reminded Simon, that wickedness like that leads to destruction. Teach us to listen instead to the voice of your spirit. If there is anyone here, anyone watching or listening to this who has not accepted your gifts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit into their lives, I pray that they would do so now. Lead them to pray, Yes, Lord, I haven't been faithful, but I would like to be. I turn my life and my spirit over to you so that I can be part of your family. Please grant me your spirit and teach me to follow the ways of Jesus in all that I do. Lord, whether uh, we have prayed that prayer a thousand times or just once, please make it so for now and forever. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, remember, you have nothing to fear. Because wherever you are, wherever you're going, God is already there. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. See you next time.